So thanks for coming. Okay, what I want to do, this is uh, just to kind of encourage each other. and also helps me to understand how you're thinking and what's going on in your lives. So we've met twice. Um, we're here tonight. Next week we're not meeting, right? Because I have to teach a Harvest Essentials class at the same time here. So, so we'll take a week. You'll take a week off unless you're coming to Essentials 2. And then um, we'll come back for three weeks. So you get a break next week. Okay. Um, having said that, so we've just met a couple times, but what are some things that have kind of stirred your thinking or stirred your heart or that we've talked about in class that you found to be helpful? I know we did this last week and it was kind of interesting to hear back. So let's just take a few minutes to share. What, what has been helpful for you thus far? If anything at all. Okay. Okay, good. That's great. Yeah, it's kind of important, right? Yeah. Okay, good. That's good, Josie. And for those of you that aren't involved in the quote-unquote inner workings of the church, we're not trying to keep you in the dark. We want you to know how the church operates and functions and why and why we do what we do. Because I, I get it. Like I, I understand that if you're not dealing with the inner workings of the church and you're serving maybe in an area of worship or ministry a few rings out from the center, that sometimes you can look at leaders in the church and like, I don't understand why they're doing that or I don't understand the decisions they're making. Where did that come from? Like I totally get that. Because some of us are thinking about this stuff all the time. And we know a lot of background stuff. And we don't always have time to communicate that. So I, I get it. Um, but understanding at least how churches function can at least assuage any thinking, well, they're not thinking about it. At least you know they're thinking about it. And there's other things on their radar that may not necessarily be on yours, right? So that's, that's good. Uh, what else? What is the church the story of? God's doing in your life. Yeah, the church is really the story of what God is doing in the world. And if you're part of the church, and if you're a Christian, you are part of the church, then the story of the church is the story of you. So why would you not be interested in what God is doing through you, in you, wants to do in you, may in the future do in your life? So I think... It's strange to me that some people aren't interested in the life of the church because the life of the church is not something out there. It's, I'm part of that story as part of God's people. And I would say, by the way, that that idea is maybe the greatest motivator or the second greatest motivator for helping people who say, well, I don't need to be part of the church to be a Christian understand that's ridiculous because it's not just some organization out there that's trying to do on a large scale what you're supposed to be doing individually if you're part of the bride of Christ and you're part of the church and the church really is the story of what God is doing in the world making disciples bringing glory to himself then why, why would you be dismissive of that now obviously we're talking about the, the universal church so you kind of got to sort through what local church you're going to be part of and what your place is in that local assembly of believers. That's true. But the church, to be disinterested in the church 
is to be disinterested in yourself and to be disinterested in Christ because it's the story of what God is doing in the world. I, I think that's, that's, that's helpful for me, and I hope that's helpful for you. Um, anything else you might want to shout out? Something that's maybe been helped to you or stirred your thinking, challenged you, reinforced something you already knew but hadn't thought about for a while? Good. So I don't want this to be class one's topic A, class two's topic B, class three's topic four, and they're all kind of just disjointed. I want to. I want this to be a little bit in, integrative, where we're integrating church, starting to get into the spirit tonight, worship. We're kind of seeing how all of that works together as one topic, really, not three separate topics. Okay. All right. So we we want to just spend. I think last week was really good because there seemed to be a lot of participation, but I want to get into a discussion with the Holy Spirit tonight, so I'll move a little bit faster, but I don't want to rush. Uh, we, we were talking last week about the church and some of the key, uh, really the, the, the purposes of the church is what I called them, and uh, let me just review quick. So we talked about purpose number one is to exalt and glorify God. God's mission is to bring glory to himself, and so it must be the mission of his bride. So that was point one. We looked at several scriptures. Uh, point two was to preach the word. We looked at Ephesians chapter 6, and some of the aspects of prayer, or sorry, preaching, including understanding that you're an ambassador of that message. The third one was we looked at prayer that it's part of spiritual warfare, that understanding prayer as a means for God to manifest his presence is really important. I, don't, I think it's a bit... I think it's okay to talk about prayer as a spiritual discipline, but that's not sufficient. You need to understand that prayer is not just something you do because it's something you should do. It is one of the biblical means of calling for God to manifest himself in your life or in your church or in worship or in your family or whatever it might be. And we focused in a little bit on the phrase, your kingdom come. So we talked about the kingdom is, that God, we want God to manifest his power and glory in the church. And then we had a little conversation about how prayer makes or breaks the life of a community of faith. So that's where we ended. So the, here's, here's number four purpose of the church. So this is number four. And we'll use two words. They're synonymous for our purposes. Uh, to encourage or edify one another through meaningful relationships. And that means that we must be a community but a bit of an unusual community. We must be a holy community. You can be this, but this must be present to be a biblical church. And it, that also spills into our understanding of uh, worship. So there's lots of communities that have 
certain practices or priorities that look similar to the church, like friendships or social engagement or teaching. You can find those, those aspects of church community elsewhere. But we're a holy community. So we're not just some hyped up social community that happens to throw a little Bible around. So let's go to Acts 2. Now I'm stressing this point because, well, I don't, have to, I don't think I have to convince you of this. There are elements of Christianity that really have become communities, but not holy communities. There's, they define their mission as, well, we're kind of like a social services agency. Or we are, uh, um, you know, we're about feeding the poor. Or we're about uh, rescuing orphans. Or we're, we're just about teaching people things. Or we're about athletics. Or we're about activities. Now, those things, I'm not saying those things in themselves are bad. In fact, we should be doing them. But that's not the essence of what we're about. We're a holy community. We are Christ's bride. So look at Acts 2, um, 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, fellowship. You, you all probably, have, if there's one Greek word that most people know apart from agape, it's koinonia. So fellowship is like spe a spiritual friendship, a spiritual fellowship. That's the idea there. To the breaking of bread and to prayers. Result, awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had everything in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I would just suggest that you probably don't want to get bogged down in the idea of communal living. Um, I'm not opposed to that, but, and, and, I, and I think it, 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 in this context it was a very good idea. But it's not mandating that as the form for Christian living. Always keep in mind Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. And later in the New Testament, when Paul is writing letters to other churches, there's like zero indicators that communal living had caught hold and was the common practice throughout Asia Minor, or even in Israel. But it was one form, so it's fine to do, but we don't need to be reductionistic and say it's the only way to live as Christians. Okay? I thought about starting a commune years ago. <laughs> and uh, the guy I was going to start it with, I'm like, nah. I don't want to see him every morning. <laughs> so, but what I want you to focus on more is the underpinnings of this, which is this sense that they are uncommon, they're different, they're focused, they're like uber-focused. It's all about God, it's about people, it's about ministry, it's about getting it done, it's about sacrifice, all of that. Let's not get bogged down in form, 
But all of that is really important stuff to the church, and it's very unusual. So some of you may have done even a, there's a study coming out of Harvest Chicago on common community. It's pretty basic. But if you don't remember anything else, just remember the title. We're an uncommon community. <laughs> so biblical fellowship, here's some things. Participation, sharing, focusing on the one another's. We're on mission together. We're bearing burdens. I'll take you to one more passage. Galatians 6. Galatians 6 reminds us that life in the church will be messy. Looking for a perfect church? Good luck. The church will always be filled with brokenness, people that drop the ball, apostates, messy circumstances. Some of it will come from you, and some of it you'll be called upon to try to heal. So a lot of people, I'm looking for the perfect church, yeah? You know the old line, when you find it, you will make it imperfect. Okay, so Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, this is speaking about life within the community. This is not speaking about, oh, you see some guy on the street that's an atheist messing up. This is life in the church. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that doesn't mean you who are perfect in every single way, but you who are more or less spiritual, you can call yourself a spiritual person, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Then this warning, keep watching yourself lest you to be tempted, right? Bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If he thinks he's something, he's nothing. He deceives himself, test your own work and so forth. That's just another great example of what uncommon community looks like in that we're bearing burdens. Accountability. Um, accountability, by the way. Let's, let's look at the word. Account. Ability. The ability to hold someone to account. That's what it means. So accountability is not, hey, you know what? Thanks for sharing all your problems. Pray for you, brother. <laughs> Meet you next Tuesday at Timmy's. So how'd you do this week? He's still doing the same thing. Pray for you, buddy. Like accountability means you're going to hold someone to account. So we're not saying we rushed. We rush forward with heavy-handedness, but sometimes you take your brother or your sister to the wire. You're like, you, you're going to stop this because I'm. I love you enough. I'm going to. I'm going to call you out on it. Like I'm going to actually tell other people if you don't stop it. So one little principle that's not totally relevant to what we're talking about. If you're in an accountability relationship or in any relationship, never, ever, 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 ever swear to someone that you're going to keep things confidential until you find out what it is. And if they don't trust you, then they shouldn't share with you, period. Because there's this little notion that floats around the church, which is not biblical, that if I share something with you, no matter what it is, that you're bound to keep it confidential. Really? No. Uh, I'm not bound to keep it confidential. If I love you, and, I, and there's no need for anyone else to know, I'm not going to go blab it. Why would I do that? But let's say you share an unconfessed sin and you're just going to continue on in it and on in it and on in it and on in it and on in it. At some point, I'm going to take it to the church. I'm actually going to believe that Matthew 18 is accurate. But I'm telling you, this is why counseling outside the church, people love it. 
because they get advice and they do not get any accountability because the, the counseling agency has no ability to keep you ultimately accountable. Whereas a biblical form of counseling a church is church-based. We care for your soul. We're not blabbing your stuff around, but if there's no forward movement, we, we will love you enough to take it to the next level, right? So that's biblical accountability. And fortunately, we're not doing that every day, but once in a while it's necessary. Discipline, corporate worship. So how, here's a question I wrote down. How does this affect our view of me? Here's me in relationship to us. This is me. This is the us. How does this view of church affect my understanding of me in relationship to us? So the secular world has convinced you, especially if you're born in the West, that, we're not going to use this language, but it's the message that comes through loud and clear, that you really are the center of your world. So stand up for yourself, but you're right, you're getting ahead, not, not, not. and that's fed in so many different ways. So many different ways. <coughs> but really, the Bible presents a view of church that says it's, it's more about the us than the me. It's more about the we than the I. So what does that mean? Like, What does that look like? As you think about you in relationship to the us, what are some of the responsibilities you have if you're part of a holy community? What kind of a mindset do you need to don in order to contribute to a holy community? Let's just hear from you a little bit. Good. Very good, Jack. We look out for one another. We help each other. We serve each other. And it's not so that we can look good. It's not so we can get an award. It's not so that we can order little, you know, a lot of churches, little gold plaques to put them on the piano or chairs or organs. Go ahead. Within the church, you're talking, or are you talking outside? It doesn't matter in the building or outside of the building. No, I mean when we're gathered or when we're scattered. We're just talking about mindset here. The church people, though. Pardon me. Members. Yeah, church. We're talking about the church. So the question is, you look at this idea of a holy community and all that stuff we're supposed to commit ourselves to. How does that affect or influence? my view of myself in relationship to the us. Joe? It's more of a binding together as opposed to separating yourself so you can prosper or, or get ahead. Yeah, good. If you want to... Sorry, go ahead, Nancy. Just if you are to move ahead, doing it on your own is tough. Mm -hmm. So the support that, that others provide, yeah. providing you're all on the same page, Yeah. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're towing a tougher road than you need to. Yes. And maybe it won't even be that. Yeah. I, I would even take that about eight notches up and say that 
it is impossible to be a healthy, vibrant Christian by yourself. It's impossible. The church is so, so important and so fundamental to our identity. Have you ever met anybody that's really growing and flourishing and doing what God has called them to do, but they hate the church? They have, they have no connection with other Christians? It's impossible because you are part of the we. It's not, it's not like an option. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to either be part of a church or I'm going to do my own thing. You don't have that choice. God has called you to be part of a we. It's not just you. So remember what John the Baptist said, he must become greater. I must become less, so he must become greater. That, that mindset, we could kind of apply to the church. I must become less so the church can become greater because the church is the body of Christ. And then the church must become less so Christ can become greater. So this is, this is so important because it's easy, 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 especially in the West. And I've been preaching on this a little bit. It's easy to miscommunicate to people that we have a church that exists for them. So we're going to market the church to meet you. Come to our church because we're going to make you feel good here. Come to our church. We're going to help you. Well, what about you in relationship to the us? So just challenge yourself a little bit. It's easy to, oh yeah, in a classroom setting, yeah, I understand that makes sense. But think about like your attitudes and your notions. We're all like, yeah, we're kind of a little bit selfish. Even when it comes to church, like, it's kind of, kind of about me. And the scripture just challenges us to move past that and beyond that to something that's actually better and more satisfying. So how do we maintain, if, if, if it's about the we, well, I, I want to go back to a question we addressed two weeks ago, which is eldership. How do you have authority in a church, recognized authority in a church in the form of eldership, but at the same time it's about us? How do you do that? So some would say that's not even possible. You can't have authority and truly have us. You, to have us, you have to have a democracy. So how, what is the key to helping us balance, and I don't want to kind of give the words away yet because I want to get you thinking about it. How do we have people in positions of authority in a church, but at the same time have a strong view that it's us? Okay, so that's the attitude we must adopt. Good, yeah. But what else? Nancy, you, you should know this by now because you brought it up last week. I'm waiting for somebody to give the right answer. Okay, <laughs> okay. With a more recent Bible. <laughs> that's good, that's good, yeah. Have you ordered one yet? Or? I don't see why we left the King James. Are we getting okay. numbered? Yeah. I mean, why did we... Well, oh, Jesus used the King James. Not very Christ-like. No, I thought myself. Yeah, these and thous. Okay, so what are the two words we we tossed out a couple weeks ago? One starts with an O. It's like a philosophical word. What was that, Ryan? Yeah, you're on. I know what. Yeah. 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 Uh, ontology? Yeah. Good. So, this is so helpful. 
on, the ontological and the functional. Think about this even in, we'll add the word you. So the ontological you is you're made in the image and likeness of God, you happen to be a human being, you're valuable, uh, you're a mammal, you're a created being, those kinds of things. The functional is, oh, you're a teacher, you're an artist, you're a student, you're retired, you're a parent, you're a great-grandmother, um, you're a Canadian. These are more like the functional aspects of you, but the ontological aspects are just who you are. It's about your being. So this is a being word, this is more of an action word. So here's the idea. When we talk about eldership in the church, or authority in the church, or even authority in marriage, we're not saying, oh, you're a lesser person ontologically, so you don't have as much of a say. We're not saying that at all. Everybody in the church is absolutely equal in the image and likeness of God. You know, Galatians talks about there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female in Christ. Everybody is ontologically on the same level. And if anybody in a position of authority ever forgets that, that's abusive, that's wrong, that's sinful. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ under God. But we have different functions, just like in society. So we see this in the Trinity, where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equal, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in being, okay? Not equal in function. So if God's okay, if the per three persons in the Godhead are okay with being ontologically equal, but functionally there's superiority and so forth, then why would we be why would we have a problem with that? It's it's actually an expression of um, relationships that we see in the eternal Godhead. So always keep that in mind. So we talk about community that is not in any way, shape, or form in contradiction to authority. Not in your marriage, not in the church, not in society, blah, blah, blah. So we encourage one another through meaningful relationships. We're absolutely committed to this. Okay, number five, get rid of all this. Uh, number five, what did I write down? Okay, I'm just kind of taking this one a little further. So this is number five. It's the equipping part. So what, to equip one another. Matthew 28 is the Great Commission. And verses 19 and 20. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I'm with you to the end of the age. Okay, go to Ephesians 4.12. He gave, this is verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, oh, just so we can have different functions. No. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, 
for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we go, we plant churches, we make disciples, that's Matthew 28. We form spiritual communities called churches, but within the churches there's offices. Here there's the fivefold New Testament ministry offices. And all of them exist to build up the church so that we might grow up and mature in Christ. And everybody has a different role in that whole mix. So, in making disciples, we teach them. What does teaching involve? Well, it involves helping people understand the meaning and the application of God's word. So everybody has access to the Bible. So we're all looking at the Bible, right? We're looking at it. We're reading the same things. Okay, this is the Bible. This is God's word. We're seeing the same things. Why do we need teachers then? Because God has gifted certain people to help us to understand meaning and application. So we talk about meaning, original meaning, kind of the universal meaning. So original meaning would be like, Paul is writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians. Not to you, to the Ephesians. So we want to understand, what were the Ephesians thinking? How did they process it when they were like, oh, Paul wrote us a letter. What does it mean to us? So there's the meaning specific to the original context. Then there's the universal meaning, which the early church evidently saw in the text. Hey, this is going to be beneficial because they preserved it. They made copies. They distributed it between other churches. They're like, yeah, it was written to us. But you guys would really benefit from this. So we know that New Testament churches, when they received letters from apostles, would circulate them. I can't remember the reference, but there's at least one reference in the New Testament where Paul's like, hey, when you're done with it, pass it on. So we want to understand meaning. And there's a whole bunch of stuff. Sometimes we need to understand geography, the meaning of words, the historical background, the controversies of the day, the particular culture, the, you know, all kinds of things, the audience. Application, well, application is multi-pronged. There's like kind of the universal message for everyone. There's implications of messages. There's a, you know, there's theological application that affects your mind. There's attitudinal that affects your you know, your heart, there's kinesthetic or practical that affects your, your hands. So, I mean, application can be multi-pronged, and that's why you can hear two or three different preachers preach the same text, and one may be focusing on a different aspect of application, but it, the text has the same meaning to it, right? So, why do so many churches fail to hold in high regard the teaching of the Word of God? Can be offensive. Can be offensive. Let's write out some reasons. It's hard? 
What did you say? It's hard. It's offensive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to put a low view of Scripture. By the way, should we assume that everybody actually wants to mature? <laughs> no. Not everybody wants to grow up. What's that? Look at Ken. Yeah. I mean, Ken, why don't you stand up and tell us why? Hey, I'm going to tell you this. This is very helpful. You need to understand that certain things that are on the center of your mental radar are not necessarily on other people's radars. And when they're so central to your radar, it's like, really? And when they've been on your radar for a long time, it's hard to imagine they're not on everybody's radar. But maybe then you can think back to a time when really important things weren't on your radar. And you're like, okay, a little bit of humility. So immaturity, what else? Yeah. The fact, the fact that it's time-sensitive material, that it's outdated and uh, okay. we've evolved. Okay, so and oftentimes this is a failure on behalf of the teacher or preacher to make the cultural leap, to make the connection to the modern world, <coughs> ancient world to the modern world. And to be honest, the further you get away from the ancient event, the more work you may have to do to get there. Yeah. Perhaps an over reliance of uh, your own ability to understand things. Okay, so that. Okay, good. What are we going to call that? Um, pride. Okay, pride. <laughs> That's a good one. So it's like, well, I can figure this. I don't need you telling me. I. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the Bible was written in language that was mostly understood, presumably, by the original recipients. I mean, there's layers of meaning to it. that They may not have been able to see every nuance because they didn't have other books. To, you know, one book sheds light on a, another book and back and forth, and when the canon of Scripture was completed, you kind of see, we have the advantage of seeing the whole picture, and we also have like 2,000 years of scholarship at our disposal, but they would have understood a certain measure of meaning. But a lot of people, I don't need you to talk and figure it out myself, and I would say this is almost like tied to, uh, we have to be really careful about this. But an oversimplification at times, an oversimplification. But at the same time, we don't want the Bible to, we don't want to take the Bible out of the hands of the average person and say, well, you can't figure it out because you don't have a degree or whatever. We never want to do that. So I'm going to tell you, I'll let you in on a little tip here. Oftentimes when I'm preaching, I'll say, do you see this word? Do you see this? Look at this. Look at verse 18. Look at, notice the three verbs. Why am I doing that? Because I want you to develop the ability to see the text in a deeper way. So I may be giving you information, but at the same time, I want to teach you how to read your own Bible. Because I want you to be free to read your own Bible. I mean, I'm 44. I may not be around next year. <laughs> <laughs> Getting old. 
I am officially over the hill. I am officially, oh, look, 70, right? Zero, 70. 35? You're over the hill. So I'm down like, I'm over here. Glenn is like down. <laughs> Marilyn's much younger. She's yeah. <laughs> people always, do you notice how it always stirs people when I talk about percentages? It just freaks people out. I'm like, I'm over 50% used up. I thought about that. But it's kind of a scary way to view life. Anyway, like four you're sevenths. You're teaching, and you're, you're teaching to a, a person that's newly Christian or something like that. Yeah. And he doesn't have the vocabulary of, yeah. of you know, where you're at. Yeah. And you got to go down to that so that he would understand you know, the meaning of it. Yeah. I'm not so concerned about vocabulary. I'm concerned about communicating things without assuming that there is a background of information already in their head kind of thing. I'm not concerned about the words. I think it's overly simplistic to say don't use big words. Why not? Sometimes one big word can capture an entire paragraph of words that would be, so it just makes it easier. Let's learn some new words so we can speak quicker more efficiently. But there's a certain concept that someone in the room may have a background to and someone doesn't. So as a preacher, you've got to be aware of that. At the same time, you should put the cookies on the top shelf. Like make, pe make people reach for it a little bit. So I think there's something redemptive about coming to a sermon or a class and saying, oh, that was like almost too much. That's good. Because if nothing else, that tells you that there's more to your faith than what you learned in grade two. Sunday school class, that the Christian faith can stimulate the brightest of minds for your entire life. Yeah, Joe? I was just thinking, um, oftentimes we also don't uh, put enough emphasis on the Holy Spirit's work on, in uh, helping us discern yes. the message. So we believe in the doctrine of illumination. And the doctrine of illumination is that when we approach the Word of God, with a contrite heart, with a desire to learn, you know, set our pride aside, and we're focused. You know, it's like sometimes people are, I don't get much out of your my Bible. Yeah, because you just worked an 18-hour day. Uh, you're almost asleep. You're trying to read it. You're sporadic. You know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why you don't read well. But if you approach the Word of God prayerfully with a contrite heart, and at the same time, you're engaging your mind. It is amazing how over time God will reveal things to you on a very spiritual level. The illustration I use, I don't even think that I literally see this, but spiritually, when you're reading a text, many of you probably have this, where you're, you're reading it, and maybe you've read it many times before, and it's as if, God has a highlighter, and he's just putting the yellow on the page. You're like, wow, I never thought about that before. I never saw that. Or That's just meeting me at my specific hour of need. That's called illumination, where God's illuminating your mind to truth. So at the same time, we want to be scholarly, with a small s. We want to be thoughtful. We, want to, we don't want to read things out of context. You know the old, the old joke. So many of you have heard this before. 
people that I'm going to hear from the Lord. No, I want to hear from the Lord, right? So they practice the flip and point method. <laughs> so it's like, Judas went out and hung himself. <laughs> and then like, I want to confirm it. Go you and do likewise. <laughs> want to confirm it again. Whatever you do, do quickly, right? So we want to be, we want to be careful that we don't take the Bible out of context. But at the same time, it's not like every time you read the Bible, you have time to read eight commentaries and take three courses just to get into the text. And some genres of literature in the Bible are easier to read, if you're tired, than some others. And because we're Westerners, we like the epistles because they're very didactic. They're like, do this, don't do that. We get into some funky prophecies where there's figure figures and images and historical references that we haven't taken time to study. Well, this is kind of overwhelming. But don't let that dissuade you from reading the whole Bible and studying it. Because a lot of people, they spend their entire lives just like, all I know is Romans and Matthew. I've never read Isaiah. I've never read Psalms. I've never read Lamentations. I just don't even spend any time there. So we tend to gravitate to what? The stories, which are actually accounts. Stories is not the greatest word because it can imply fiction the accounts of scripture and the epistles. Tell me a story or tell me what to do. And there's other literature in the Bible beyond that, right? So study to your weaknesses as well. Don't just study the stuff. I tell young preachers because it was told me, preach to your weaknesses. Don't just pick the passages you already know. Like go to books that you have no clue about and force yourself to study them so you can communicate them to God's people and you'll grow in the process. So equipping one another, um, the primary role of elders is to teach or at least oversee the work of the ministry, but other people besides elders are gifted to teach in the life of the church. And I would just say, by the way, if I were to add one more thing, I would say, like, ignorance is important. And, I, and, and I'll tell you why I think ignorance, we need to put ignorance on this list, because... Um, yeah... All these imply a deficit in the reader, but this one doesn't. A lot of people come to a church like ours or a like-minded church that preaches the Bible, and it's not because they're, I'm offended by Scripture, I have a low view of Scripture, I'm immature. It's because they've never been taught. They're just ignorant. They don't know. Like, I don't, man, I never thought about this before. I didn't realize this was kind of important. So... Ignorance. They come from a church background or a non-church background. Like, I didn't even know you, you could study the Bible. I didn't even know it was important. Or I didn't know the Bible was that awesome. Or when I grew up in church, they always made it really boring. I just went for the coffee. And that wasn't really good. So, by the way, one of the greatest sins in the church, aside from bad coffee, is powdered creamer. <laughs> that should just be totally banned. Do I hear an amen? Do I hear an amen? No powdered creamer is ever allowed on this, on this property. Okay. Yeah, scripture reference. Hebrews. Hebrews. Yeah, Hebrews. Yeah. Hebrews. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's that? What's that? Okay. So. 
You're not supposed to laugh in church. Okay. So, um, smart enough. We're here for some serious stuff, guys. Okay. All right. Six, to evangelize the world. This word, by the way, is a Greek word that's just been swapped out more or less for English letters. Euangelion in, in Greek is um, the word for gospel. And it, it means like to herald good news. So even the word gospel means good news. So an evangelist is heralding the gospel, heralding the good news. Um, Mark 9, 41 We herald the good news with our deeds and with our mouths. It's an overstatement, but some ancient wise man said, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And the idea there is the gospel is proclaimed. He's not saying you can't proclaim it, but... The gospel also must be incarnated by God's people. And we, we know this. I mean, some of, us, some of us didn't grow up in church. And when you came to church, I, I'm just guessing, for those who didn't grow up in church, that one of the things that caused you to think about the gospel might be that you saw it working in the lives of other people. Anybody on that page? It's like I, this actually makes a difference. These people are real. It's your story? Yeah. yeah. So look at Jesus says um, in uh, Mark 9, 41. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, here, here's, <clears throat> here's probably the context. Um, you know, it's fine when someone has the idea, let's stand at street corners in Windsor and hand out water bottles. Okay, whatever. If you want to do that, great. Don't call me. Um, but the idea is in Israel, so, you know, okay, a little map of Israel. Okay, this is Jerusalem. Okay. Pretty much from here down is kind of like desert. And it's interesting, when I was in Israel several years ago, and some of these, I don't, know if, I don't know if I remember seeing them in the northern cities, but some of these desert cities, there would be places, so you'd be walking through the city, and let's say this is a wall, an old wall, and there'd be a little step up, and there would be kind of like a basin and an arch over it, and they get the little stonework around it and all that, right? And what is that thing? Well, this was a watering station for weary travelers. People are going from one place to the next. And one of the <laughs> signs of hospitality in those cities was you would offer a cup of water to the weary traveler. So the reason why the whole water bottle thing doesn't work that well is because we're not short on water. But this is actually a life or death analogy where you're saying, to offer a cup of water, it's like, oh, that's just something that cost me 25 cents. No. Jesus is talking there 
about saving people's lives, period, potentially. Someone's really thirsty. So it's, 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 it's much, much, a much stronger and more important act in ancient, especially Near Eastern mindset, than it would be in our context. I mean, some of us have been thirsty. We know it's not fun. But the idea here is we need to act Christian, and friendship or hospitality and proclamation are not an either-or. They are one and the same. And what often happens is the church dons the mantle of the ones doing the proclaiming, and then we just farm out the doing to the parachurch, which is not even really a biblical. It's not unbiblical, but it's not biblical. Jesus didn't start uh, mission agencies, seminaries, Christian schools, missions, street missions. That was all done through the church. And so I'm not opposed to those things, but they need to be tied to the church because it primarily is the job of the church. So we have this idea of doing. And then 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. This is one of the best passages in the Bible to help people to understand that we are cultural missionaries. In the old days when our country was more or less Christianized, we, we just expected people going to another country to be aware of culture. We didn't have to be aware of culture because everybody's one culture. But we don't have that benefit anymore. There's people in our country from all over the world. It's a mishmash of cultures. And... It's very, very, very much post-Christian, if you haven't noticed that by now. So we need to be aware of what's going on around us, kind of have our finger in the pulse of culture, and try to understand how do we adjust in necessary ways. So look at this. This is Paul. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So certain like non-moral rights or options, he would set them aside because he didn't want to, let's say, offend people from another religion for whom a particular action or idea would be offensive. To the Jews, I became a Jew. So when he's around Jewish people, he's thinking about what? Kosher laws, Old Testament law. Like, how does a Jew think? Is there anything that I might say or do that would kind of turn a Jewish person off from me proclaiming the gospel to him. He would be aware of that. It would actually be on his mind. And then he says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. So he would actually submit himself to certain Old Testament customs just so he would have an audience with them. But then he clarifies, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, so to Gentiles, I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, in other words, not being outside of God's moral law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. And then he kind of puts it a different way. To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. He's not going to get them all. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. 
So the gospel is not just some static, here's your little box, here's the three things you say, you say it the same way all the time, use the exact same words, quote the same scripture. A wise person adjusts their approach, varies their mode of operation depending on who they're talking to. So if you're talking to a little kid as opposed to a university professor, speaking to someone who's for whom English is their second language as opposed to someone who's their first language, someone who's churched, unchurched, someone who's Muslim or Hindu or quasi-Christian, you adjust. You, you, you vary the mode with people. It's a little harder in a mixed audience when there's all kinds of people. But one-on-one -on -one or in small groups, you, you adjust, you dialogue. I think we all know this. I mean, you're not going to speak, I hope, in the same way to someone who has zero biblical background as opposed to someone who has a pretty heavy-duty biblical background. If it's just a one-on-one -on -one conversation, you're going to adjust. You're not going to make those assumptions. And you, you do that for the sake of the gospel. So here we have cultural awareness, adaptation to the circumstances, but it is all done with a sense of urgency. So we don't adapt. It's not like a laissez-faire kind of adaptation. No, we are very urgent. We are very strategic. We are very precise, but we don't necessarily act that way with people. So here's like our discipleship model. Um, in our church, we kind of emphasize four things. We preach, so we declare the gospel in word and deeds. We ultimately are looking for people to profess faith in Christ and be baptized. We want them to identify with their local church. We call it ministry partnership, and we want to plug them into service. And um, the corporate forms we use, so there's like the corporate and then there's the individual. So we get together, and there's certain corporate forms, if you want to call them that, that we use to try to move people from hearing the gospel to professing faith to identifying with the church to service and ministry. So we want to have good, solid ministries that are strategic in the life of our church that serve a purpose. Please don't be one of those church people that get so connected to a ministry that when the time comes to close it down or modify it, you're like, that's my thing. That's my ministry. Where I'm, I don't want it. You're taking it from me. It's not about you. We've always done it that way before. Like I essentially have banned the staff from ever using the word annual around me. Don't say annual. Well, it's the annual picnic. No, it's not. Well, we did it 10 years in a row. Who cares? We might not do it next year. It's not annual. Because that means traditionalized. Now I'm going to start using the word annual, and you're going to catch me up. <laughs> so a high-impact worship service. And that worship service, uh, we're not afraid of using the word designed. We don't think that's an unspiritual word. It's designed to help believers, as much as we have a, a part in it, to approach and encounter the holiness of God, be reminded of the holiness of God to encounter God, and for those who don't, don't know the Lord, to be like, wow, something's going on here. And hopefully, by God's grace, if the Spirit gets a hold of them, for them to say, I want to be part of this. So we have a high-impact worship service. Then we want to assimilate people or integrate them into a small group. 
we have different kinds of small groups. We have life groups, which are mixed. We have discipleship groups, which focus on a particular demographic. We have hope groups, which are time-limited, meeting specific life-altering events. But we think no matter how big we get, we can always connect by being part of a small group. And that's where you get like the up-close accountability, your specific questions answered, and you really develop relationships. So the, the other thing I would ask you never to say around me is all big churches are unfriendly. Really? Like, tour around a little bit. That's just so, so cliche. I've been part of some very community-oriented, loving small churches and some very impersonal small churches, and I've been part of big churches that don't get it, and everyone's just a number, and I've been part of big churches that are just love on, loving on people big time. It's not about how many people are there. It's about the culture you create and the values that you hold to. So as, as part of our church, we want you to champion those virtues and values as well. And part of it is by being careful what you say and not saying things that are counterproductive to our mission, like, well, the church is too big. That's not a, it's not a wise thing to say, and it's not a true thing to say. The reason why I can say that is because I pastored this church when it was like five people. And I don't think we do community less well than we do now. I think we probably do it better. And we're much bigger than five people. So uh, it's not about the size of the church. It's about the virtues and values that you champion. Um, so we assimilate people. And then we want people to ultimately express service by the three W's. How many of you know what the three W's are? Okay. Richard? Worship, walk, and work. Four. Christ. Mm -hmm. So these kind of sound bites... We might change them up in time, but they kind of summarize. It can help us to all speak the same language. We all can kind of, you're talking to someone, okay, what's your church about? What's your discipleship model? Like, what are you asking from me? Very simply, we want you to worship Christ. We want you to walk with Christ. And we want you to work for Christ. Pretty simple. That's our discipleship model. And everything kind of pushes you toward that. We want you to engage in the Lord, have a vertical experience with the Lord. We want you to walk with him day by day, love him, be loved by him. Let him encourage you, let him rebuke you, and we want you to engage in an act or several acts of service, working for the Lord to the glory of God. So um, when, I talk, when we talk about evangelism, just very quickly, some things that work and don't work in evangelism, and you can kind of add to this list. Uh, frontal approach generally doesn't work in our culture. You've got to circle in on people. So you've got to have a conversation, you've got to build a relationship, you have to remember names, you have to ask questions about their background, and you begin then to share your story, which is part of God's story, which is part of what God is doing in the world. And at some point, you ask that person about their needs and invite them to put their faith in Jesus. Now, having said that, I find that if you wait too long in the friendship phase, it becomes very difficult to transition. So if you're just kind of hanging around with someone for like a month, two months, you've chatted with them like 10 times, you've never brought up Jesus, then it's like, oh, I don't even know how to do this. This is just... So I would suggest, while you've got to show some of that love and care, early on in the relationship, let them know who your true love is and start to engage in that. Second, the second observation is you would be surprised how willing most people are to talk about spiritual things. So don't assume everybody hates any conversation about religion. I find 
that the sooner, the quicker, the more kind of blunt and bold I am right up front, the more effective it is. But if I kind of overthink it, beat around the bush, and oh, when should I bring it up? It becomes very difficult, and it starts to become kind of weird. Because people realize, okay, you're kind of setting them up. Everyone's received a marketing call. Hey, Mr. Rock, how are you? How's your day? Good? Everything going well there at the house? Yeah? How's your internet working? So don't be like weaselly and weird. Um, That's the other two W's. Uh, Weaselly and weird. You can write those down. So, um, so, so kind of just being open and honest with people. And you know your personality, so you know what works for you and what doesn't work for you. But I, I just find kind of a casual, frontal. Yeah, hey, yeah. I'm, what do you? For me, it's hard and it's easy because people will ask the question I do not like answering. So what do you do for a living? Because then they're like, then you gotta convince them it's not just your job, right? But sometimes it opens doors and sometimes it closes them down like right away. What do you do for a living? I'd rather you not ask. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> what's that? Just saying spiritual advisor. Yeah, I'm a spiritual advisor. <laughs> I'm a redemptive. Oh, <laughs> you still like that one, right? It's good. Yeah. So why you don't have the nice attitude? Like, yeah, I am a pastor. Yeah. <laughs> like, where are the people What do they do? Yeah. Well, think about it from the other side of the equation. You meet someone, you're like, hey, I'm going great. Yeah, what are you doing this week? I'm going to the mosque. As a Muslim. Like, it kind of, ooh. So, this guy's a Muslim, is he going to kill me or something? So, people have notions of what it means to be a pastor or a Muslim or a police officer. Oh, you're a cop? Did I just do anything wrong? No. Um, so, just think about that, right? Um, think about who, what you do and how that hinders or helps. I, I had a neighbor several years ago, he's, he's, he's a Chinese guy, diehard atheist um, from China, and he said, where do you work? I said, oh, I'm, I'm a pastor. He went, <laughs> and he never spoke with me again. Like, I would even go to his house, hey, I noticed you're pounding a post, and here's my sledgehammer. Thank you. Here's it back. Like, he just wasn't interested at all. He's my neighbor for like 11 years. I never had a conversation with the guy, because he didn't want to. There's just little little words here and there. Um, other people, it opens doors, right? So my other neighbor sit out all the time and talk about spiritual things because, well, that's what you do. Why would you not want to speak about it? So just be aware of those kind of things. What helps you or hinders you in evangelism? Let's go with hindrances. Just shout them out. What hinders you in evangelism? Inauthenticity. Okay. Todd Dugard had a post. You know Todd? He's a pastor of Harvest Bailey. He just baptized his uh, father after praying for him for like 35 years or something. So, yeah. 
Um, what else? Impatient. Fear. Lack of knowledge. Okay. Yeah, lack of knowledge. Yeah. Most people aren't asking brainy questions, by the way. And if they are, there's only like four questions they ask. And you can listen to the men's ministry lecture I gave on that. They're not really all that difficult to answer. That doesn't mean you're going to convince them. But the question of suffering is not a particularly difficult question. The question of hypocrisy is not a particularly difficult question. The question of, well, evolution's proven the Bible isn't true. That's not a difficult question. And you don't have to have advanced degrees. Okay, just listen to my lecture. I think that's online, right? So it's not they're not they're not difficult questions if you just kind of understand a few basic things. But most people aren't gonna ask you those questions, I'm just telling you. So what else? One more. Hindrances. Okay, how about helps? What helps you in evangelism? Yeah? Prayer. Prayer. Kind of important. Just because it's the thing to do? Huh. Uh, it breaks down barriers and God shows up. What else? A certain level of boldness. Mm -hmm. Yeah certain level of boldness. So we believe in unafraid witness in our church. We want to boldly share the message of the gospel. How are you sure. being intentional? Being intentional. Yeah, so that's really, I'm glad you mentioned that, Joseph, because I would say my biggest hindrance in life is I get kind of busy with the life of the church and distracted. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not afraid to share my faith, but I've got to get it back on my radar. So you're just unintentional. It can be so easy to just, and, and we don't want you here all the time, by the way. We, we want you out rubbing shoulders with non-Christians and sharing the gospel. So we don't want to be a church where we expect you to be here every day of the week. Like, don't spend time with those people out there. We want you to be engaged in a community. So if you're going to play hockey or be part of different community organizations, like, don't, don't do it just because you have nothing better to do. Like, try to use that as an evangelistic opportunity. We don't want you here all the time. So, what else? Uh, friendship. Uh, go out for a coffee or together. Or yeah. Do small talk. Absolutely. Find common ground. So I'm going to find common ground with people that are going to be different for you, different for you, different for you, different for you. Everyone has different a different story. So common ground is important. Oh. I have a son that's five. I notice you have a son that's five. We should get together sometime for a play date. Okay, that would be more like girl talk. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm throwing that out there. Um, I'm, I'm having a candle party. Okay. Although, admittedly, I did have one in Bible college to get a free blanket with my dorm mates. So, but that was a long time ago. I've repented of that. Um, Oh, you play hockey, we play hockey, or you know, different, different things like that. We're trying to encourage our kids. So there's a little girl, I don't know, she lives maybe 20 minutes from us. We're going to try to bring, she was here last fall, but we're going to try to get her to come to middle school more, right? So we want our kids to leverage those relationships too, right? Yeah? I think if you're the real deal, you radiate a message that draws people in. And okay, that's good. That's the people I want to talk to. Yeah, good. And they stand out wherever you go, and there's a joy, a glow that... Yeah is already there before you even say it. Yeah, good. No, excellent. Yeah, being friendly. <laughs> being an attractive personality. 
I'm like, there's a lot of Christians. I wouldn't want to spend time with them. You know? I was like, please go away. I want to talk to an atheist. You know? <laughs> so not being one of those people. What else? Someone else had their hand up. I saw a hand. I saw Carmen. You just look like you have something you want to say. Sure. Um, okay. Just on the intentionality thing, mm -hmm. um, even your in conversation, uh, to not get bogged down in certain things, mm -hmm. like evolution, creation, sort of deal, like just yeah. steer the conversation where it matters. Yes. Right? Very wise. Yeah. Um, so, I'm just trying to think how I should frame this up. So a situation arises, somebody comes to the church, they get bogged down in something I say or something someone says that's important, but it's not central to the gospel. And I appreciate the fact that a couple people took that person aside and like, don't, don't get, don't let that throw you off. Like, don't let the footnote throw you off from the message. And... If you're around someone that always wants to debate you on the footnotes, they're probably not right for harvest. You guys get that? So the fields are ripe for harvest. And if you've read like the Vertical Church book, there's a helpful analogy in it. Well, it's kind of helpful, but it's really only helpful for people that know a little bit about agriculture. So the analogy is a red apple and a green apple. Okay, but people that aren't knowledgeable of agriculture are like, are oh, you talking about Granny Smith's and Red Delicious? No. We're talking about a red apple that's not yet ripe that's still green. So maybe not the greatest analogy. Um, the idea is you need to look for the red apple. So in your, let's say you know 10 people that don't know the Lord. You're praying for them. You're asking the Lord to open up doors of opportunity. Some people, you're gonna, they're going to ask questions. They're going to be more interested. They're going to... Uh, answer your questions with more than one word. Those are like the, the red apples. So you're not the Holy Spirit. So you don't have to create red apples. But the, the point is, is you need to look for people that are ripe for harvest. You need to look for people that are demonstrating signs of spiritual interest. And those are the ones you should invest your energy in. So don't be... Like you want to be, per, you want to persevere. See, so they're bounced. Okay, you want to persevere. You want to be faithful in proclamation, but you don't want to spend all of your time on people that are not ripe. Now, is there anything in the Bible to indicate that's actually a biblical paradigm in Jesus' ministry? How many times did Jesus like shake the dust off his feet? He's gone. So Je Jesus is God, right? Probably a little better at evangelism than we are. So he'd go in, he'd preach the gospel, everyone's like, get out of here. Okay, I'll see you later. But sometimes we would have said, oh, if I just keep debating and debating, I mean, we've talked about this, right? Because Andre is a very competent debater. And he debates some pretty hard-nosed people. But sometimes you're wasting your time. Because what you're doing is you're trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit. Or that person may be actually the devil's tool to distract you from the red apples around you. You're not even paying attention to the red apples because you're just all into the green one trying to make it red. So you have to be careful about that. Uh, by the way, people that are, like people that are more like soft personalities or more, they look more spiritual or they look like they might be more interested are not necessarily red apples. They can be very, very green. 
and other people that are like in your face and kind of tough, they can be red apples. So it's not about personality. You got to kind of exercise a little discernment. Find your way to a feet of Colossians 1.28. I want to take this idea of a holy community a little further. So seven is to purify herself. This is one of the this is one of the hallmarks of a biblical church. And it's not it's not just so that we can do evangelism well or it's not really a pragmatic consideration, it's because it's right to do it. So Colossians one twenty eight says him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. They're like, well, how many calories should I burn doing that? For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. A lot of calories. Very important. So the church, one day there's going to be a roll call and a reckoning. We want to present the church pure in Christ. And you can also write down Ephesians 5, 26, 27. Ephesians 5, 26, 27. The goal is holiness presented to God. So we want the church to be beautiful and holy and righteous and pure to glorify God. So the church must... Um, dedicate herself to holiness. Now this spills over into number eight, which is to restrain evil and promote morality. May not work, may not have a lot of traction, but we do it anyway because it's right. So I'll just give you some passages. I've got to move a little quick here. Matthew 5, 13, we're to be salt and light. Just crudely speaking, we could say we're supposed to be change agents. 1 Corinthians 5, the church is to commit itself to discipline within its ranks. I uh, 1 Corinthians 5, it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. Isn't that interesting that sometimes Christians can act worse than unbelievers? In this case, it's a guy who's got his father's wife and uh, it says, are you not arrogant? Ought you not rather to ought you rather not to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He pronounces judgment. <coughs> challenges them. A little bit of leaven or yeast can ruin the whole bunch. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the ones of this world or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise you'd have to go to the world. But people in the church. So we believe in church discipline. No, you can't come to church, profess to be a Christian and act however you want. No, you can't. It's not allowed. And... Uh, the church is supposed to challenge you if you try to do that. So when you're part of a church, you're not an island unto yourself. You're surrendering yourselves 
for mutual accountability. But it's amazing how many people will hear that and be like, oh, that's fine. But when they're challenged, mind your own business. We've had people stay, say, quote, stay out of my bedroom. Really? You're shacking up with someone that's not your spouse. We're supposed to stay out of your bedroom. That's your, you've not been listening for 10 years. Not new people. People have been around for a while. Really? Um, so church discipline is one of the marks of a true church. It's just, again, I could talk about that at length. You can look at Matthew 18. It shows the process. 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, and by the way, church discipline is for church people. It's for people within the church. It's not saying we don't associate with people outside the church, but there comes a point when you shun, good old-fashioned word, but it's biblical, you're supposed to shun people who profess to be Christians but refuse to surrender themselves to God's word. But you'd never shun an unbeliever because we don't put... We don't place Christian moral values on unbelievers. We don't have any expectations of them. We expect people that don't know the Lord to be adulterers and liars and gossips and all that. We expect that. Because you're never surprised. Oh, my neighbor smokes weed. Yeah, they're an unbeliever. People across the street are living together. Yeah, they're an unbeliever. You should expect that. But we should expect otherwise from God's people. And we hold each other accountable to that. So this also goes, this is like a radical view of the body of Christ. It's not about me, it's about we. And then 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Notice partnership, fellowship. What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This is not talking about, oh, I can't hang out with unbelievers. This is talking about fellowship, partnership, covenantal kind of relationships. So typically the church has applied that to marriage. Okay, that's a great place. Unbelievers shouldn't marry a believer. But let's, it's actually not specifically saying marriage. It's just, hey, business. Why would you open a business with an unbeliever? What are you thinking? So I'm starting my own business. I'm going to go into business with an unbeliever? Why would I do that? Unless it's an imbalance of power, and they have the majority of the business, and I have the minority, or the other way around. But why would I have an equal partnership with someone that doesn't know the Lord? At some point, there's going to be a, a clash of values. I have a good friend. Years ago, he started a business with his brother, and he, I told him not to. He did it anyway, and later he's like, I should never have done it. It was a disaster. It's my bro, man, but he doesn't know the Lord. They just close the thing down. So the unequally yoke means we separate ourselves, not from the world, or we'd have to leave the world, but we don't unequally yoke. Think of yoking. Yoking, you know what a yoke looks like, right? You know the big wooden thing they put over the, the, the heads of two? Here's my... Here they are. They're smiling. Two teddy bears. Yeah. Two teddy bears. So. Yeah. Believe it or not, I was an art major in high school. So, um, so in the old days, they used to yoke teddy bears together to plow fields. <laughs> 
that's what they had. Um, so that's an equal, you don't want to unequally yoke. So you don't have a big ox on one side and a tiny little six-month-old donkey on the other. They're just going to plow in circles. So that's the idea. So there can be, I would say to people, there's times when there's an unequal yoking. I mean, some of you are believers. You work for an unbeliever. But that person's your boss. It's not an equal yoking. Or you might be a believer, and you're, you have unbelievers that are your employees. Okay, that's not an equal yoking. But a marriage is an equal yoking. And being 50-50 in a business is an equal yoking. And buying a rental house with someone that doesn't know the Lord in a 50-50 relationship, that's an equal yoking. Don't do that. Because there's going to be a clash of values. right? And the reason for that is to maintain purity, not to put yourself in a predicament where you're being forced to do things that are contrary to your values. And the reason for that is because we're supposed to restrain evil and promote morality and live a certain way. Okay, so the future of the church, so we've done our eight. Future of the church, we're going to be a, to be a remnant people and to persevere. Matthew 24, verse 12, verses 21 to 25. So Matthew 24, 12, 20, 21 to 25. And 1 Timothy 4, 1. The church is a remnant. And the church is to persevere as a remnant. That's the reality of the moment. Long term, the church will dwell with Christ eternally. A couple scripture references, 2 Corinthians 11.2 and Revelation 19.7. To dwell with Christ eternally. What was the last 11.2 and then Revelation 19.7. Okay. So, all of that should affect the way you worship and the way you um, think of church. Okay, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. So, the importance of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do some like, theological teaching here, and then we'll get into some, some of the implications of that in two weeks when we meet again. So, the importance of the Holy Spirit. So, that's category number one of my notes, the importance of the Holy Spirit. Three points, and then we'll look at some scripture passages. Number one, the Holy Spirit, if you think about this, God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this age, so we're 2,000 years removed from the incarnation. We're further than that removed from the Old Covenant. So under the Old Covenant, you could say that the primary point of contact that people had with God was God the Father. Under, during the time of Christ, the primary contact that people had with God, the agent, the person, was Jesus Christ incarnate. In the church age, the primary point of contact that we have is the Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit in the life of the church is the point, the person, through which the Trinity becomes personal in the life of the believer. So the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts you and illuminates your mind to truth. Well, first of all, converts you, illuminates your mind to truth, convicts you, encourages you. So even if you're not thinking about the Holy Spirit a lot, you're having an encounter with the Holy Spirit every day of the week. You talk about the presence of God, the 
Holy Spirit is present in our church. The Holy Spirit is present when we're serving the ordinances. The Holy Spirit is present in baptism. The Holy Spirit is present in conviction. The Holy Spirit is present in the proclamation of God's word. We're encountering the Holy Spirit all the time, but a lot of us just aren't thinking about it. <laughs> but if the Holy Spirit is primary person in the Godhead that is encountering, interacting with God's church today, then we should probably know something about the Holy Spirit and acknowledge the blessing and the beauty and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our church family. So we're not afraid then to say that the Holy Spirit makes God experiential. Makes God experiential. Sadly, because some Christians want to set aside beliefs or doctrine and just focus on a mystical encounter. Some. Some Bible-believing Christians have overreacted. And they're like, we don't want to talk about an experience with God. We just want to talk about beliefs and truth. That's not biblical. All through the Bible, God is having experiential encounters with his people. So we're not afraid to talking. We're not afraid at all in this church about talking about having an experiential encounter with God. We want you to know truth. We want you to believe certain things to be true. But we also want you to have an experiential mind-blowing, convicting, passionate, encouraging, daily encounter with God. And the Holy Spirit makes that available to us. So we can actually walk with God. Not just walk with a certain set of beliefs, but we can walk with God. And the Holy Spirit is prominently at work in this age. For whatever reason, I don't know why God decided to do that, but for whatever reason, it seems that under certain, we used to call them dispensations, we don't use that language too much anymore, but under certain ages, God, certain persons within the triunity of God seem to be manifesting themselves more to the people. So under the old covenant, there was a limited awareness of the triunity of God. It's just we're just encountering gods. We could say that God the Father. And then in the New Testament age, God is manifesting himself through Christ, walking on the earth, preaching, teaching, that 33-year window. And then Jesus is like, I'm going to send one after the Holy Spirit. I'm going to show you some scriptures to this effect, where the Holy Spirit is prominently at work in this age. It's not to say that the Holy Spirit was sitting in an easy chair in the past or that God's no longer doing anything. I don't want to be like, I don't want to, I don't want to miscommunicate. But God is manifesting his presence in our church. Now God is, obviously, God is one. So Father, Son, and Spirit are also working together. So this Sunday's preaching text is don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to give it all away. But it's interesting that they're blaspheming Jesus. But he says, I don't want you to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But we're not blaspheming the Spirit, we're blaspheming you. But to blaspheme Jesus is to blaspheme the Spirit, because God is one. Okay, so there's, and we sometimes we use the language of the Spirit of Christ is in the church. So we're not trying to separate out God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as if they're three different beings. We don't believe that. God is one in essence. But he manifests himself in three persons. And the primary manifestation of God in this age 
terms of the nuts and bolts of church life and worship is the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be interested in knowing that um, the, the, the word spirit, as it relates to the Holy Spirit, um, is kind of an interesting word. So back in the Old Covenant, if you were to look through uh, the uh, 39 books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis through Malachi, there is a little word. Um, so, ruach, kind of ha, uh, just trying to think of the, something like that, There's a little vowel down here someplace. So this word, ruach, appears... 379 times in the Old Testament scripture. It doesn't always refer to the Holy Spirit. It can be used of the Holy Spirit. It can be used of air, wind, breath, and probably a few other ways. But that's actually the same as in English, because spirit can mean an alcoholic beverage, an evil spirit, the spirit of man, a, a feeling. Isn't there a spirited feeling in the room? Or the Holy Spirit. So in English, we actually have some semantic broadness to this word. And in the New Testament... It's pneuma. And uh, you might recognize this like pneumatology, uh, pneumatic, like a pneumatic tool. Um, what are some other ways that, what are some other cases where that word would appear in English? I don't remember. This is 300 times in the New Testament. In different forms, right? Like there's verbal forms and nominal forms and different ways it can be used. And this can be used of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, breath, or you'll like this one, attitude. Okay? That person's got a bad spirit. Doesn't necessarily mean they're demon-possessed. It means they're bad attitude. Now, this tells us something. The Holy Spirit is kind of intangible, kind of hard to describe using concrete language. However, because of that, our human minds can start to think of the Holy Spirit as like an impersonal force and not an actual person because of the words that are used. The reality is, Here's the fact of the matter. To use human words that we understand to try to capture the essence of an immaterial being who is the all-sufficient, eternal creator of the world, that's kind of difficult. But nevertheless, uh, the Holy Spirit is 
not equal to an impersonal force and is not to be thought of merely as power and is not to be thought of in those kind of more or less concrete terms. Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that the Holy Spirit is God's impersonal force because they're not Trinitarian. If you never talk to one, they're not Trinitarian. So their view of the Holy Spirit is, that, let's say I'm God the Father, and this is my hand, and I move it. So when I move my hand, I'm moving air around or displacing air, whatever the official terminology of that, that would be. I'm moving it. Now let's say it was kind of cloudy in here. We had a smoke machine. You could see me moving it. It would be like rolling off. You could see me moving the air. That's their view of the Holy Spirit. When God moves, the impersonal force that emanates from God is the Spirit. <laughs> but that makes God, the Holy Spirit, other than a person. He's like shock waves or sound waves or something like that. But the Holy Spirit is not framed up that way in Scripture. The Holy Spirit is framed up as a person. So let's talk about that. So we're asking the question, the nature of the Holy Spirit. If he's Ruach, if he's Pneuma, is he a person or is he power? You read about the Holy Spirit in Scripture, and he possesses personality traits like will, uh, intellect, subsistence. Personality includes will, intellect, subsistence. The Holy Spirit possesses all three. So personal pronouns are used of the Holy Spirit. He's referred to as he, not it. Uh, he speaks. Here, let's look at some scripture. So Acts 13, uh, 2. Let's make this quick. So Acts 13, 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Acts 21, 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. Shockwaves don't speak. John 15, 26. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, that's one of the terms used to describe the Holy Spirit. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, in case you didn't get it, who proceeds from the Father, in case you didn't get that little Trinitarian theology going on there, he will bear witness about me. He will bear witness. He will bear witness about me. That doesn't sound like an impersonal force to me. Sounds like a person. A person with personhood, not a person in the sense of a human being. John 16, 13 to 14. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. There's the functionality, the difference in the function. But whoever he, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, 
For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says, oh, here's not just saying, he's expressly saying it, that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared and so forth. So he speaks. Um, if you read the New Testament, the Holy Spirit has a few other things. He's the object of faith. We believe in him. We are baptized in his name. We're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Not the Father, the Son, and God's impersonal force. We are indwelt by him. It talks about the Spirit living in us. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf, so he receives our prayers. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts, 1 Corinthians. The Holy Spirit gifts the church with certain spiritual talents, if you want to call them that. We're exhorted not to, in the scriptures not to sin against the Holy Spirit. Who sinned against the Holy Spirit in Acts? Yeah. Lying, right? For trying to pretend they're spiritual. They got wiped out for that. We're told not to resist the Holy Spirit. We're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fulfills roles only a person can do. He is called our teacher, our sanctifier, our comforter, our guide. That's not impersonal. You don't apply that to impersonal forces. He governs every believer who is led by him. Um, pastors or bishops or elders, if you want to call them that, are ultimately gifted and uh, given to the church by the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about ordination, we're not talking about the church choosing. We're talking about the church affirming who the Holy Spirit has chosen. The Holy Spirit searches hearts, reveals God's will, convicts us of sin. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 10. No, let's go with verse 9. But it is written, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. However, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So we're talking about a different kind of spirit there. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So in the same way that your spirit kind of is your internal, the internal part of you that is aware of how you're thinking and your consciousness. So the Holy Spirit, who's a he, who's a helper, <coughs> understands the, you could say, the internal workings of God, using kind of rough language there. So he knows the things of God. The Holy Spirit also descended upon Christ at his baptism, did he not? In kind of an incarnate form, the form of a dove, affirming his um, union with Christ, his fellowship with Christ, now, some people have asked the question, okay, so the Spirit is a being, person. Is he divine? 
So here's some several points to do with the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And uh, okay, I can let me write these passages down. We'll just look at one. So Isaiah six nine, Acts twenty eight twenty five, Hebrews ten fifteen. Let's do the Acts one. Acts ten. No, sorry, Acts 28.25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, and then he quotes from Isaiah. So the Old Testament believer would have understood that when Isaiah spoke, he was speaking the words of God. But Paul adds greater precision to that truth by help, helping us understand, well, it was in fact the Holy Spirit who is God, who is the person in the triune God who is speaking God's truth. Second point, believers are called the temple of God, and the reason why we're called the temple of God is because the Holy Spirit indwells us. We'll go to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, the Spirit of Christ here is to be understood as the Spirit sent by Christ. Not there's two different spirits, Holy Spirit and Spirit of Christ or whatnot. Um, lost my place. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life because of righteousness, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So we have this um, idea here that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Here's a few more references if you want to do some cross study. So uh, Acts 5, 1 to 4. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And Ephesians 2, 22. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not forgivable. Uh, Matthew 12, 31. And also this Sunday's text, which is uh, Mark 3. Verse 20 to 33. He knows everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. He knows everything. He exists everywhere, so he's omnipresent. Let's go to Psalm 139. And we're going to look at verse 7. You want to run from the Holy Spirit? Good luck. It's not going to happen. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Well, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, and on and on and on. You're not going to get away from the Holy Spirit. He's omnipresent. He's God. He does what God does. The works of the Spirit are the works of God in Scripture. It's called the Spirit of God. He fashioned the world. Um, I, I don't like it when people look at Genesis chapter 1 and assume that the ancient reader saw in the text what we see in the text. 
they didn't have a full picture, as full of a picture of the, tr the Trinity as we do. But now that we have the rest of Scripture, and Scripture is supposed to interpret Scripture, there's Trinitarianism clearly in Genesis, the opening verses of Genesis 1. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the blanket statement. And then there's like the here's how. The earth was without form and void. Darkness over the spirit of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So he's involved in creation. And then God speaks. We understand based on Colossians 1 and that, that's actually speaking in Gen uh, John 1, that the, it's actually the son of God, Jesus, who is the creator, the creative agent of God. So he's involved in creation. He exists everywhere. Um, he regenerates the soul. So when the Bible talks about being born again, it talks also about being born of the spirit. To be born of the spirit is to be born of God. So uh, this is more like our theology of man, but um, a helpful way, and people do disagree on some of the nuances of this, but I'm not going to get into it all. Um, when you think of a human being, probably the best way to think of a human being is one unified being composed of body, soul, and spirit. Now, the body we get, your physicality. But that's eternal. I mean, it dies, but it's, it's uh, resurrected to life or damnation. The soul, think of that as your personhood. You could, if you want to throw in your personality, your mind. But some people have a diminished mind. So it's not just your mind. It's your personhood. This, you're born... Let's go. They're not percentages, okay? But you're born a two-thirds person because your body's alive and your soul's alive. But your spirit, according to Ephesians chapter 2, is dead. And when we talk about being born again, this is the part of us, if you want to call it that, the more accurate word is the constituent part, part that constitutes you. This is the part of your constitution, Ephesians 2, that is made alive in Christ. So it says you're dead spiritually, but you're made alive in Christ. And the agent that makes you alive in Christ is the Holy Spirit. <coughs> the Holy Spirit regenerates you. And you become kind of full. Right? And this, by the way, is very helpful for understanding why unbelievers don't understand certain spiritual truths. They're literally, a part of them is dead. So they're hearing, they have a body that works, their ears work, they have a mind. They're living in the same world as you, but there's a, spirit, a, part, a spiritual part of them that's not injured. It's dead. This is from conception. Islamic theology disagrees. Islamic theology says you're born a blank slate. Everything's perfect, and you then choose to sin. So it's the Holy Spirit that regenerates. To be born of the Spirit is to be born of God. He is the source of all knowledge. He's the giver of inspiration. 
He's the teacher, the guide, the sanctifier, the comforter of the church in all ages. He makes our bodies. He formed the body of Christ as the fit habitation for the fullness of the Godhead. And he makes alive our mortal bodies. We're going to end with Romans chapter 8. <coughs> so we've got to understand who the person of the Trinity is, or the, the uh, Holy Spirit is. And this is going to help you this is going to help you to understand life within the church, and it's going to help you to understand why we worship the way we do. Some of you have been raised to worship from the neck up only. In fact, I would say most of you are neck up worshipers. Worship for you is a, uh, an act of the mind. And by the way, without offending, although I don't really mind that either, um, <laughs> that's demonstrated through your body language on Sundays. Because you're just nodding you're listening, you're reading, you're thinking. It's just a mental exercise. And there's more to worship than that. Everything in that circle is supposed to be engaged in worship. So I'll just challenge you on that one. You can think about that a little bit. Romans 8.11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the spirit of God will be God's agent at the time of the resurrection, which is our ultimate hope, right? So we die in Christ, body and spirit, heaven. Sorry, soul and spirit, heaven. Body goes in the grave. At the end of all things, in this order, so you die tomorrow, this is in heaven. This isn't. But the ultimate goal is not to live your life in some disembodied state, plucking a harp on a cloud. <laughs> the ultimate goal is, you're not going to spend eternity in heaven. You're going to spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, according to the latter chapters of Revelation. So God's going to take us back to a, an Edenic state, like Eden. And we'll be walking on, a, on dirt. And we'll be in a beautiful place for all of eternity. The unbeliever dies. The soul goes to hell. And ultimately, there's a resurrection too, but a resurrection unto damnation. And unbelievers don't spend eternity in hell for all of eternity. They go to the lake of fire. So hell is cast into the lake of fire, Revelation tells us. Um, the Holy Spirit is the agent that allows us to have the hope that we will one day be resurrected. We're like, well, how do we know he's going to be able to do it? Because he raised Jesus from the dead. So we have like a down payment, a guarantee of that. Okay, so when we meet again, we're going to talk more about the person of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit as our advocate and how we kind of works in our lives. So we're going to look at some of those like internal dimensions. So what does the Spirit actually do in my life? We'll talk about assurance. Can you actually have assurance? We'll talk about a little more about illumination, conviction, and filling, and all that kind of stuff, and what he actually does. And all of that good teaching and theology will help you to understand not only your place in this thing called the body of Christ, the church, but it will it'll turn the light on in your mind as to your primary call as a worshiper of God.